Hello and welcome to On The Ledge podcast, episode 113. I am your host, Jane Perone. This is the podcast for VIPs. That's very important plants, of course. In this episode, I chat to fellow plant podcasters, Stephen and Matthew of the Plant Daddy podcast about the game of Tetris, that is getting your house plants ready for winter, what to look out for when you're checking your plants over and bringing them inside, and how to make sure they stay in tip-top condition over the colder months. And I'm answering a listener question about ferns and ivies. Thanks to Suzanne for joining our merry band of Patreon subscribers. Suzanne's become a legend. Unlocking extra exclusive content and making sure that On The Ledge continues to go from strength to strength. And if you're on Twitter, don't forget that the next Houseplant Hour is happening at 9pm BST this coming Tuesday, the 22nd of October. Join me at Jane Perone on Twitter and at Houseplant Hour on Twitter for a friendly, funny and generally informative hour talking about our plants. Right, that's the housekeeping out of the way. So on with the main topic of conversation today. Gay millennial plant daddies Stephen and Matthew started their own podcast, the Plant Daddy podcast, earlier this year as a way of bringing intersectional horticulture right into your earbuds. And I'm delighted to welcome this new podcast to the podcast landscape because it's great fun and it's a podcast about plants that I don't have to make myself, which is a big bonus. And when they invited me to collaborate, I just couldn't wait to have a chat to them. So we decided to talk about winterizing your house plants. And in this chat, we get into all kinds of things from my irrational hatred for orange heucheras to vine weaver and some of our favourite sources of houseplant information on the net. It's a great chat, so I'm just going to let Stephen and Matthew introduce themselves. So this is Matthew and Stephen from Plant Daddy Podcast. I'm Matthew. Um, I'm Stephen. And we basically are old friends who have really been interested in plants for a number of years, and our interests developed independently, but we've kind of discovered that there is a huge community of well, basically like gay guys in our area who love houseplants, and we wanted to kind of help to support and nourish that community. Yeah, so we were having a lot of conversations with our friends, and we thought, why not start recording some of these? Maybe there are other people to reach out to. And really, you know, we we give plant advice, plant experiences for everybody, but with, a, I guess, a particular eye toward that community and, um, and others, uh, you know, enjoying plants too. But our ultimate goal is to make this a very accessible hobby because I feel like the entry point to being interested in houseplants is incredibly easy to meet. They're so beautiful. They're so interesting. There's so many benefits that one can have by bringing houseplants into their life or just plants in general, whether you garden outdoors or in. And we have each kind of converted people to being houseplant enthusiasts simply by being open to those conversations and sharing knowledge, experience, and interest. So we're really excited to now kind of have a, a spotlight that we can shine on some of those uh, interesting plants and help new people get involved. 
Well, you know what, guys? It's really, really nice to be able to listen to somebody else's podcast about plants that I don't have to sweat over. That's the nice thing um, as a listener to other plant podcasts is you can just enjoy it and you don't have to be worrying about, oh, you know, like the sound or how did you book this guest? It's very, very nice to have that. So thank you for starting your podcast. I don't know if you mentioned, I don't think you did where exactly you're located. I, I, I'm... I'm sure this happens to you as it does to me that people go, I love your voice. Um, uh, the sonorous voice. I don't know what part of the US that is from, but where in the, where are you? Or is it Canada? I insulted somebody terribly by saying they're from the, uh, they're thinking they were from the US and they were actually from Canada. So I shouldn't make assumptions. Yeah, we're close. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're in Seattle. So right near Canada, but um, yeah. It's the like West, a three hour drive north to get there. Yeah, the West Coast of uh, North America. Yeah, we're in the Pacific Northwest, which offers a really fantastic climate. The way that the Pacific Ocean shelters us from some of the extreme northern weather. Well, I haven't been to Seattle, but I do have family in Vancouver and Victoria. And I tell you what, next time I'm over there, which I don't know when that'll be, I'm gonna I'm gonna come down and see you guys because it's not that far. And I I know what you mean about the climate there. I mean, when when I say to people oh, I've got family in Canada, they all say, "Oh, what's it like being in the snow?" And you're like, "Well, it doesn't really. They don't get a lot of snow actually. You know, that side of things is." Uh, it's a different climate but yeah quite similar to ours actually so yeah that's that's interesting are you doing the house plant shuffle right now like i am where you're looking at things and going oh i've got to get that inside this needs moving that needs moving yeah we are right on the cusp of when our nighttime temperatures begin to fall and so i haven't brought anything in quite yet but i'm starting to make those you know, calculated assessments yeah. so i actually have started this process um, I'm bringing in my more delicate succulents that can't get um, too cold at night. And I'm starting the process of bringing in these plants kind of one by one, making sure there are no bugs spraying down with neem oil, and then trying to, uh, you know, fit these in with this uh, complicated jigsaw puzzle, right, in, indoors where you used to have room, but then you bought a new plant over the summer and there's no longer that space. So what do you do? And <laughs> that That is the thing. And you also realize that things, you know, like I've just moved my to a Thai constellation monstrous into my front room, forgetting that the floor in there is an oak floor, which is not, it's not varnished. It's kind of like oiled or something. So gutation, the delights of gutation are occurring overnight. And then I've got all these drips on my floor and I'm thinking, oh, it's a good job I'm not too precious about these things because uh, yes, it's already uh, marking the floor. So yeah, they may have to be moved again. Um, but yeah, my husband keeps sort of coming into rooms and sort of double taking because suddenly there's a whole load of plants where there weren't plants before or things have moved or disappeared. And it might take him going into the room about three times before he finally realises, but eventually he goes, huh, what's happened? <laughs> so, <laughs> That's exactly how my fiance is, where it's like, I can add a few more, but then suddenly there's a tipping point and he's like, Matthew, why are there more plants on the dining room table? <laughs> yes, this this is an issue. But I want you to go into more detail about, you, you talked a little bit there about look, checking for pests. Break that down for me. What does that involve in, in detail? Yeah, so for me, um, I guess I have a particular case this summer. I had an aphid outbreak at one point. So I was looking in particular for aphids anywhere on these plants that I'm bringing in. Um, and, you know, you look under the leaves. Uh, I look at new new growth on the plant. It seems to be where aphids like to, you know, eat and um, breed the most. So I'll do those checks. 
Um, what I'll do usually is move them indoors and move them, you know, to a place that's away from some of my other house plants that have that were established and not, you know, put out for the summer. So I'm so I'm not putting them right in the thick of those things and maybe spreading the aphids before I catch them. Yeah, I would say um, just there. It's really it's really a process of spraying it down with neem oil, then making sure you don't see any. Um, I really spray down almost every plant unless it's a type that's sensitive to that. Um, and then I would say over the course of maybe a week or two. Um, I then feel com- you know confident that nothing is there, and then I move them in with the rest. Yeah. Now, for for me, it's a little bit different because Stephen grows a lot of uh, particularly sensitive carnivorous plants that don't like to have a lot of chemicals, and you have to be very thoughtful of how you treat them. But most of what I grow are either flowering or fruiting or foliage tropicals. So. My main process is as the temperatures get colder, I start to bring the plants in based on the order of their tenderness. And so those first most sensitive plants I'll bring, and I actually bought a special shower head that has uh, a wand attached that you can use to spray. So I will take each individual plant, regardless of whether or not I think it has pests, and I just give it a really good hose down. I have a kind of expanding hose that I can screw into my sink faucet in the bathroom and lead it out onto my balcony where I'll water things thoroughly throughout the summer. But something that I have found is that my plants that are outside tend to have fewer pests than ones that I grow inside. And a problem that I'm always encountering are mealybugs and scale. Like those are the bane of my existence in my house plants. And especially with like my Hoya collection, they're always somewhat infested with various like sucking insects. So I've kind of settled into this routine of just managing their populations to a level that it's not either getting sticky stuff on other adjacent plants to increase the risk of mildew or like, you know, damaging surfaces that that stickiness might be getting onto. But I just keep the plants at a level where I know that they're healthy and I know that they're fine. And every few months I'll spray them all down. But the plants that come in from outside tend to have fewer of these because I have a lot of beneficial insects that are able to come by. And whether that's yellow jackets and wasps or aphids and ladybug uh, relationships, like a lot of those insects uh, out there that would be feeding on my plants tends to get cleared up just by kind of natural, uh, natural insect activity. So when I bring them inside, I'm mostly looking to see if I have missed any or if anything has kind of uh, popped up since we had a lot of yellow jacket activity picking off insects. Uh, And I'll just give them all a really solid spray down in the the shower. And if I notice that there's anything particular that I'm worried about, I'll give them treatments of either like an insecticidal uh, soap spray if I want to go a little bit more, more organic on it or I'll use neem oil. But I have to say, honestly, neem oil is not a silver bullet for me. You have to apply it frequently over periods of time in order. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be really religious about that. I think. Yeah. What I think one of the misconceptions about neem oil is that it's like a great organic solution to your pests, but it's not like an insecticide that you'll spray on and kill everything immediately. It's a chemical that inhibits their reproductive fitness. So if you're not using it often, you'll damage some of the insects, but then the eggs and larvae continue to develop. So if I'm using neem, it has to be on a plant that I'm going to be dedicated with using it regularly. So you also use peroxide, right? Uh, I, for this, not for this. I have 
only used peroxide a little bit and I've never really found it to be that useful. So I kind of oh. skipped out on that, but I will use alcohol just like a 70% ethanol solution. I'll spray plants down or I'll use a Q-tip and kind of go through, uh, especially around like leaf nodes and areas where there's a lot of new tender growth that might have insects, but I'm kind of my own silver bullet is a toxic systemic chemical spray. Um, I have a bunch of animals in my apartment, and so I really want to be careful to not accidentally poison a pet. So I'm very thoughtful with when I use this, but I find that using either a granule to apply on the soil or a liquid spray that you can saturate the foliage and allow it to dry while it's still in the shower, uh, that's usually the thing that I'll use in cases where I feel like I really have to like, knock something out hard and Two pests that I'm thinking of when I'm bringing my plants in that you didn't mention, and perhaps these aren't problems for you, but number one for me is I'll be checking underneath the base of pots for slugs, uh, which like to hang out. And then the worst moment is when you've brought a plant inside without doing that. And then you're just, you know, sitting, chilling out. And then suddenly you see this slug kind of making its way across the floor. That's not a good moment. So that's one I always check. And then the other one is the other one is vine weevils, which um, I don't know if you have there, but they're little um, larvae, C-shaped cream larvae that eat the roots of plants outside. And I know that I've had infestations in my in various pots over the years, and that they turn into little brown beetly things with long kind of noses. We may call those fungus gnats. Is that is that oh, different? No, this no, is something different. different. Okay. This is different. Yeah. We, we do definitely get fungus gnats. That's just a problem that I'm sure the whole world faces. We have some types of weevils here, but I don't think that we have that particular one. And it's not a pest that we encounter. Uh, with the vine weevils, you I've just applied a nematode biological control treatment. With, so it's it, you can get nematode biological controls for various different pests in the UK here, including vine weevil and slugs. But the ones I got were specifically for vine weevil. So they, you, it's like a powder stuff. It looks, well, it's kind of a spongy stuff. You keep it in the fridge and then you mix it into water and then you water it on into the pots. And it's kind of gross, but the, the nematode worms, which are kind of microscopic, so there's millions of them in the water. They go into the larvae and just destroy them from within. So, um, Hopefully that's happening right now um, so that I won't be bringing any vine weevils in. But they are quite easy to see and quite distinctive because they are really C-shaped. So I will probably, most of the things that I'll be bringing in have been combined with other, they, they've been put into bigger pots. So most things will be separated out and I'll be checking the roots uh, for those. So yeah, that's, that's not a fun one uh, when you discover those. But um, I mean, they... It depends on the plant. You do get them sometimes where you're literally like, particularly with a, a garden plant that we is popular here called heucheras. You'll lift up a heuchera and there'll be no roots on it because they've been completely destroyed by the vine weevils. So, yeah, it can be serious. The heuchera is actually North American native. And my mom has a beautiful garden outside. So I have uh, helped her landscape a lot of it. And we have a large collection of variously colored heuchera, which I've been calling huchera. How long is a piece of string? It doesn't really matter. I mean, I'm I'm a total snob. I'm a total heuchera snob. I'm going to reveal my snobbery now. I really love the p dark purple ones and the lime green ones, but I cannot stand the ones that are like orange 
Uh, that's my that's my own prejudice. All of those growing <laughs> in my mom's garden. Um, I'm not I'm not snobbish about right. them, but I totally respect your opinion. This this interview is over. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, um, yeah. No. I mean, I it's silly because I love you know like an orange, a, a sort of pumpkin orange pepperomia or something i'm all over but it's it's just it's just totally unfounded prejudice that's all it is we'll be hearing more from the plant daddies shortly but now let's hear from this week's sponsor on the ledge podcast is sponsored this week by the joy of plants if you like to put foliage center stage in your life then check out the joy of plants hotel suites at the lehman lock hotel in london which provide a wonderful, immersive forest bathing experience in the centre of the city. I was lucky enough to stay in the productivity suite designed by biophilic designer and architect Oliver Heath, and I can confirm that being surrounded by houseplants all night long left me feeling wonderful in the morning. The Joy of Plants Indoor Plant Jungle Hotel Suites are open for bookings until November 10th, 2019. Book your stay by emailing thejoyofplants at lockliving.com. That's thejoyofplants at L-O-C-K-E living.com. And check out thejoyofplants.co.uk to see images and more information all about the three rooms. I'm just panicking now about my caladiums. I don't know if you've ever grown caladiums outside or inside. I'm trying to decide whether to pot them up and try to keep them growing or whether to just let them dry out and keep them as tubers. The thing that's intimidated me about getting into the caladium is that winter dormancy. Like I would Mm. love to have some of the really beautiful variegated varieties, but I've heard that they're not amazing indoor plants. And because I don't have a space where I can use like, you know, bedding for them, uh, they've just not really become a plant that I've put my attention to yet. Well, I'll let you know how I go. <laughs> I've been reading up a lots of different advice on storing the tubers. So we'll see. I've got plenty of room to store them. So, I, yeah, I would like to ha- think that it'll be successful, but we'll see. They haven't been a tremendous success outside because I put them in mixed containers with mainly, well, other things like Begonia Luxurians and Coleus, which have all gone crazy and have shaded them out too much. So they haven't been a massive success, but... Uh, that's a lesson for next year. I just, I just love the coleus, and I just like let them go rampant. So, um, that's that is the issue. And that's kind of a, another uh, topic in kind of getting ready for winter and fall is figuring out which of your plants need to enter dormancies and kind of managing that. Because if you've been growing something on a balcony and it's been getting kind of that fall transition weather and it's getting lower light for the day and it's starting to get colder nights a lot of things begin to kind of shut down and I really try to be careful to not shock them by bringing them suddenly into like a 60% humidity 75 Fahrenheit apartment and like throw off what they're trying to do so that's something that I'm kind of learning about as I go but it's important to take into consideration Absolutely. And I think particularly when you're thinking about things like cacti and succulents that might have been outdoors in the summer and that are coming indoors. I think this is what's known as the law of limiting factors. I was learning about this in my gardening qualifications I've been doing where uh, whichever is the 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 element that's in shortest supply will be the thing that is restricting photosynthesis. In other words, if there is 
hardly any light but lots of heat then that will be the factor that's that's restricting the plant's growth and I guess the mistake a lot of people make with cacti and succulents is they bring them inside and they in a really warm room uh, and they think, well, OK, it's just going to rest now. But because it's really, really warm, the plants kind of going to start stretching and looking for light, which is obviously ends up with those, you know, echeverias that look like big fireworks that have kind of gone everywhere. Um the advice used to be in the kind of books, you know, oh, put them in an unheated room. But I think I don't know. But here, not many people have unheated rooms anymore. <laughs> it's not people won't expect their houses to be 20 degrees centigrade everywhere. Exactly. Not all of us have like a carport or a garage now, right? Like a lot of urban living. Yeah, like especially like urban apartment living. If you have an area that's unheated, that means that your whole area is unheated. Mm. Yeah, we, we are pretty lucky being in an urban area because our winters are relatively warmer than adjacent suburban areas. And so plants that are like marginally hardy here, I'll leave outside for their dormancy period, but just like move them closer to the sliding doors so that they're a little bit more sheltered, maybe even like throw some burlap or canvas over them in order mm-hmm. to help protect them against the coldest weather. But I, I honestly avoid a lot of the really high light succulents for that exact reason. I don't want them to get atoliated when I bring them inside. But I do have a special window ledge that is kind of the hardest area for me to access to water because there are lots of plants in front of it that need more attention, but it gets some of the highest light that I have available and I can just kind of ignore them a lot and occasionally just check to make sure that they're still doing well, that they're still healthy, or I'll also throw things underneath grow lights. Yeah, I think it's kind of a it's a complicated period. I think like you're both touching on, right? Like you're going to change conditions for these plants. Sometimes the dormancy has started. Sometimes like this, you know, seasonal growing has started or stopped. Um, but yeah, whenever I bring these in, I try to do a bit of research about the seasonal growing of a plant or its dormancy requirements. Right. And then I bring it in and just really pay attention to, you know, is this drying out super quickly? Is this putting on new growth? And you know, it's a bit case by case, I think, even, you know, when you have these guides about the plant species. Yeah. And something that Stephen does that is one of those best practices that I don't always follow is that when he brings plants inside, he actually has a little quarantine zone where their conditions are as close to what they were outdoors as he can get them. But he can just kind of survey a plant to make sure that before he tucks it in among his really precious like orchids and nepenthes and everything that he's not going to suddenly like introduce something that'll wipe out plants that have been doing just fine until that point. Mm. I have enough house plants that I really don't have a space that I can easily quarantine. So I use my dining room table as that. (laughs) (laughs) And so right now it's like piled up with plants and you can't use it for heating. I I have seen this before. This is sounding familiar. This is sounding very familiar. I mean, I've got a a greenhouse in my garden, which in which currently are all my, almost all my cacti and succulents. They, most of which now need to come into the house to probably where I am now, the office, um, which is quite cool uh, most of the time, but needs supplementing with grow lights. And then the agaves, which are outside, need to go into the potting shed, into the greenhouse. And then I've got to find somewhere to put the other stuff that's been moved from different places in the house. It gets very complicated very quickly. (laughs) And I'll probably get it sorted out around March, just as I've got to start moving everything again. That's the, the inevitable story. Yeah, isn't it though? Something that I actually really kind of enjoy about this period is that yes it's a challenge and it does give you a lot of kind of struggles to overcome but it gives me a really good 
kind of moment to pause, check in with all of my plants, because as I bring in the ones that were outside, that means that I have to reshuffle ones that are inside. And I'll do that throughout the year periodically, but it's just a good reset. And it also gives me a moment to sort of check in and determine like, okay, I tried this. I'm not going to really worry about it surviving because it hasn't performed. It hasn't done the things that I was looking for it to do. And if it dies, that'll be fine. And that's kind of a moment where I can kind of assess and like almost Marie Kondo my life and determine Mm. like what plants bring me joy and what ones are just Mm. kind of taking up space. So true. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, there are some plants that you just think you've just let me down all year. I'm not going to take I'm just going to get rid of you. or I'm just going to find a home for you somewhere else or somebody else will take you or, or you'll end up on the compost heap in the case of something that's that's in a dire state. And it's it's very freeing, I find it's a freeing moment. Um, so that that is a good thing. But I'm also inexplicably finding myself like scrolling through, you know, like online plant websites, looking at things to buy and thinking I was doing it today. And I was thinking, I cannot buy any more plants right now. I've just been done a big plant swap with a listener and been given some gorgeous new plants. I've, I can't, what am I doing? But it's just that terrible tendency. I'm glad to hear how universal this is. And you know, (laughs) online shopping, there's no season for that. That's every season. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm literally sitting here waiting to see when this, this platycerium Ridleyi that I ordered is going to clear through customs from Thailand so that I can like get it potted and happy. I don't know where (laughs) I'm going to put it. (laughs) That's the, the sort of the, the ultimate, I think when you, when you're ordering stuff that's literally coming from the other side of the world and it's got to go through customs and have a phytosanitary certificate, you have, reached the zenith of the plant obsession but also i recognize like i've also got several philodendrons and epiphyllum on the way i don't know why i ordered them but i need them and meanwhile i wait for uh you know anything he doesn't have room for that's how it goes and i love being able to that's one thing i love being able to do is you know when somebody comes to my house and so a lot of people will just completely ignore the plants and just not get it at all. But you do get some people who come in and go, oh, my gosh, look at that plant. And then you can kind of explain to them that it's string of pearls and that it does. And you'll and you'll happily give them a cutting because you think, oh, yeah, actually, they're going to go away and enjoy this plant. And I've given them some guidance on how to look after it. And then, you know, they'll inevitably come back with questions, which you it's just nice to be able to spread that. Um, it, it does mean that some of my plants are a little bit less full than they would otherwise be. <laughs> My Hoya linearis, like, you know, it just keeps getting te- bits taken off it because it's one of those plants that people always want a piece of. But I've, I'm holding very firm on not allowing anyone to have any of my variegated uh, string of pearls, which um, is, yeah, I'm like, no, this is the special one. It cannot be cut at this time. So, yeah. I have Raphidophora tetrasperma, which a lot of people know as like a mini monstera. And it's a plant that I've had for years, and it's so dependable. It's so beautiful. And I have two pots of it that are just up against a wall. And so it has climbed the wall, and I've secured it with thumbtacks a little bit to help it stay in place. But that's one that people want cuttings Mm. of, and I always have to kind of think, like, okay, well, it's growing really beautifully. Where can I take a cutting, and Mm. how much can I cut off? Yeah, and Matthew has promised me a cutting for several months now. So now it's on the record. Yeah. Right? Well, somebody, a listener sent me a cutting and we did a swap of, I can't think what I sent them. I sent them something and they sent me the Raphidora tetrasperma and it, it's growing like bilio. It's really putting on some 
heft. I'm amazed. So I need to start thinking about something for it to grow up because I've I've currently just left it kind of flopping all over the place. So I need to sort that out. But yeah, it's a great plant. I'm very impressed with that one. They grow decently fine without being, you know, able to climb. But okay. once you give them that, it just becomes a race up to the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Like if, if you're letting them grow on your wall, like I am. But that's a plant that I want to do some moss pulls for. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a really great one, and and it does seem to be getting more widely available here. So that's um that's a that's a good thing. And it's yeah, it's I can imagine if you don't have that much room. I mean, I don't have that much room, and I've got like four monster deliciosas. So what am I talking about? But um, if you haven't got much room, it's quite a nice that you've got that kind of interesting leaf without the the massive size that the uh, deliciosa gets to. So yeah, it th- there's an aroid for everybody. That's the way I look at it. Oh, it's so true. So, and another thing, while we're talking about winterizing, I have always tried to kind of push our hardiness zones by growing things on my balcony that can't really survive here, but would do really well in the San Francisco Bay Area. And my 2019 resolution was to avoid having to drag as much stuff in. So I'm growing plants out there right now that should be pretty hardy. Like, that's kind of something that I think is... Uh, kind of a test right now, but to see like what I can get away with, but within like reasonable boundaries. And I've been surprised at the number of aeroids that are actually hardy in this zone that I've been able to put on my balcony as part of my plantings. So even if you're in temperate areas, like you can use them as garden plants or as like permanent outdoor container plants. Are you talking about a covered area or an area that's that's completely like covered but outside or somebody that's completely open to the elements well so my balcony is kind of like half of it is sunk into the 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 building itself so that's pretty Mm -hmm. sheltered but the other half actually just kind of hangs out and it's like a third story building on the apex of a hill so i get a lot of wind and a lot of outside Mm -hmm. exposure but there is the cover of the balcony above as well so there are plenty of plants um that are mostly like kind of the deciduous native ones, um, like the Jack in the Pulpits, or uh, there's, uh, I'm trying to think the name, like Aram Italianica or, or Italica. And those are all plants that do really, really well here. And they might become invasive in this area because our winters are so mild that they won't mm. kill off any plants that developed the year before. That's interesting. I mean, I, I, I my garden and patio... I mean, I've got this Begonia Luxurians, which is now a good like four foot tall. And I did see that there's a, a tropical garden in Devon, which is in the south of the U- southwest of the UK, that ha- grows this outside in a pot all year round. And I'm thinking I could give this a try, but I just don't think it's going to make it. So I think I'm, my plan is I'm going to chop it back hard. I've already taken some cuttings. I'm going to take some more cuttings and I'm going to bring it inside. But um it's look it's just about to flower so i'm a bit tortured that it's um it's going to have to be brutally hacked but we'll see i i mean i could put it in the greenhouse but i just don't think it's going to do any better in there it's just it does get very cold out there and what is your do you have a, a house plant plant bible as any listeners to my show will know i'm constantly on about one particular book is there an equivalent book for you guys in the us a house plant bible that you like to refer to you know to be honest I love books. I love reading. I love researching plants, but I don't turn to books for them typically because like when I was a child, I just poured through all of these different 
like kind of vintage gardening books that my grandmothers had. And there were a lot of really great ideas and thoughts, but they're all very out of date now between like, <laughs> like the kinds of names that they're using all the way down to like, whether you need to treat something like this precious hothouse tropical uh, that now we would just grow indoors like normal, like anthuriums. Mm-hmm. So what I do is I honestly love listening to plant podcasts because there are so many amazing perspectives and ideas that are being shared. And you're talking directly with other growers a lot of the time who are talking about their own current experience with plants that are currently available. And other than listening to podcasts, I use a lot of websites. Like I'm a huge fan of several uh, publications. Like there's one uh, called Strange or Plants Are the Strangest People. I love that blog. I tried to get them to to do an interview for me and they were so nice, but they didn't want to do it. And I was so devastated and I buttered them up so hard. I was so like, I was, I was like referencing my favorite posts and I was like really trying to make them see that I was a massive fan. And they still said, no, it's the best, isn't it? I now know not to try that myself because I would have been on that path as well. (laughs) Feel free to try. It may have just been me. Uh, They, you know, like it's always worth a go, but that's such a great recommendation um, because it is a really great place to go for planty stuff. Are you familiar with Dave's Garden? I am familiar with Dave's Garden. Who is Dave? That's what I don't know. Is Dave a natural person? Well, whether he's a real person or not, uh, I absolutely love being able to look at just kind of the general cultural parameters. But my favorite spot is reading the reviews that other people have. Exactly. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. like, even if I'm reading and I'm like, this person obviously is not really growing this plant. They have something that's adjacent or they're not offering anything valuable. There are far more that are really useful. And it's great to be able to see where people are because I know that a recommendation that's coming out of South Texas isn't going to apply to me, but I can always find somebody who's growing in a climate that's close enough to where we are that it's invaluable resource. And what about Instagram? I mean, obviously Instagram is all about the photos, but there are some really educational Instagram houseplant people out there. Who, who do you follow in that field? Well, I've, um, I've got to say, I've been listening to your back catalog and one of my favorite things is how every time you have a new guest on, it seems to be somebody that I have been just drooling over their photos like james wong's terrariums oh Oh, my goodness like his his whole thing with the water lilies and bowls has been something that i have wanted to try since i was probably 13 years old Mm -hmm. so i think that seeing what he has done is kind Mm -hmm. of like the kick in the pants that i needed and i've already started researching like the best water lilies for indoor culture lower light conditions reliable blooming um honestly like we just love instagram because the community has so many different niche interests that you can always connect with somebody. And we've had fantastic luck. Like when we were both starting out growing Stefania erecta, there's not very much information online about them. Like there's not even a Wikipedia page about Stefania erecta. So we found other growers on Instagram and just reached out and were asking questions like, hey, yours is so bushy and full. What are you doing? And we learned that a lot of the cultural parameters that the sources where you can buy their tubers uh, they're not giving you the best information. And that when you talk to a grower, they're saying, oh yeah, put it in full sun. It likes the most sun and the most heat that you can give it. Whereas everything that we saw was like, these are low light plants that you know want to stay moist, but you know don't give them direct sun. And that was completely misleading based on like what we were doing. And so just you know getting some tips from experienced growers 
really allowed us to develop some success in areas that we were struggling before. Yeah, and it's really as simple as searching a hashtag, right? You can see what, you know, who posted recently, you know, who might be responsive. Um, and really, yeah, with that plan in particular, I would say Instagram was kind of the main way we got information. Yeah. Well, I'd also say that about like the, like the Fernleaf Cactus, um, Seleniocerus, uh, Christocardiogram, that's another one that there's not great reliable information. So especially when a plant is relatively new to the houseplant market, or at least the mm. United States houseplant market, if there's not reliable information online, social media is the best place to go. I've also used Facebook groups. Like we were at mm. a, yeah. a Cactus and Succulent Society meeting a few mm. weeks ago. They had a rare plant sale that was just fantastic. And I bought this really, really beautiful I uh, like finding kind of spore plants and it looked like a cissus to me, but I couldn't figure it out and I couldn't read the handwriting on the tag. Um, and yes, yeah. Like there's a particular grower here that grows uh, like amazing obscure succulents. I've had this exact experience where it was sedum something, but, but I yeah. just took some photos of this plant and I posted them on a succulent identification Facebook group with as many details as I had. And it didn't take long before somebody was like, oh, yeah, this is such and such. And I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but it's a pretty rare plant. That there's not a lot of information online, so it's not as easy as just going onto Google and typing in, like, caudiciform vine with tendrils mm -hmm. and three pinnate leaves. Like, right. often you come up with a result that way, but that wasn't working for me that time. Oh, well, that's uh, that's really great to hear. Well, it's really nice to talk to you guys. Um, and uh, thank you very much for uh, joining me today. And I'm um, um, good luck with your continuing juggle and winterizing all your plants. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll get through it by about February and then we'll be ready to start again, I guess. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having us on. It was yeah. a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, guys. If you are not already subscribed to the Plant Daddy podcast, sort it out. You can listen and find out more at plantdaddypodcast.com and episode 20 just so happens to include an interview with me. If you want to hear more from Stephen and Matthew and you happen to be a Patreon subscriber, next week you'll be able to hear them talking about Darlingtonias in an Extra Leaf episode number 36. Before we get on to this week's Q&A, I wanted to bring you up to date with developments on last week's Q&A, Charlotte's question about a, well, she thought it was a Pilea peperomioides in a Montreal cafe, and we've had some interesting leads on this already. Amber got in touch to suggest that it could be a ruby red begonia. They say it's saucer-like with red stems, and they've been looking for one. Either way, if anyone knows where to get one of those, I'd love to know. Yeah, me too, actually, Amber. This is a really, really beautiful begonia. I think the Latin name is Begonia conchifolia var rubrimacula. The conchifolia bit refers to the leaves, uh, conchifolia meaning shell-shaped leaves, which are more or less round and with a red dot in the centre from where the petiole descends. So this is a contender for Charlotte's mystery plant. I don't know where you are, Amber, but this does seem to be available on the Araflora website, which is a Dutch online nursery. So that's one place you might be able to get it from. Also, one of our listeners has set up a Begonia Facebook group specifically for Begonia lovers in the UK called UK Begonia Growers Share Info, Buy, Sell and Trade. 
So if you happen to be in the UK, it's worth joining this group and maybe somebody there might be able to help you out with this plant. And then I got a message from Nanette who sent me a picture of her Pilea peperomioides brought back in August, which, well, dare I say it, it looks like a Pilea peperomioides with very red stems. Now, it's worth saying that I have seen Pilea peperomioides, the Chinese money plant, with slightly reddened stems, but this really is quite dark red. So this got me thinking, maybe it was a Pilea peperomioides after all. So I headed over to a really useful Facebook group called Pilea peperomioides Connection and had a search there for any posts about this plant having red stems. And indeed, I did turn up a few posts on this subject. And the suggestion was that the Chinese money plants that are showing these red stems are not a different form or cultivar, but that this has been caused by carbon dioxide enrichment in the glasshouse where they were grown. Specifically, these plants came from a website called Ruby's Plants, which doesn't seem to exist anymore. But anyway, I then went searching for information about the effects of carbon dioxide enrichment on plants in glasshouses. And one of the effects that I found was indeed an increase in anthocyanins, not specifically in this species, but in other plants, including lettuce. So there seems to be a suggestion that this could just be a result of the plant being exposed to more carbon dioxide and reacting by producing more anthocyanins in the stem. And people did report that once they took the plants home, that the redness gradually faded. So this really doesn't take us much further on a definitive view of what this Montreal cafe had, whether it was a Pilea peperomioides that had just come out of a glasshouse where the environment was being rich, enriched by carbon dioxide, or whether it was the Peperomia monticola that I suggested or indeed whether it was the begonia conchifolia. But it's great to have some ideas. And hot off the press, just into my email inbox, is a message from somebody who listens to the podcast and lives in Montreal, who's willing to go on a mission. So now I just need to hook them up with the information about the cafe, and I will give you further updates as they turn up. I'm on tenterhooks, I don't know about you. This is about as exciting as my life gets right now. Oh no, tell a light, there was the incident at the weekend where I knocked over a plant, I went to get the dustpan and brush to clear up the mess and in the process of flicking the brush around I managed to stick one of the plastic filaments of the brush into the extension cable that had the Wi-Fi box attached to it and caused a small electrical moment, a little electrical spark, uh, which blew out all of the sockets downstairs. So yeah, that was fun. Um, yeah, that was probably the most uh, plant-related excitement of the week. Anyway, let's get on to the question for this week, which comes from Ashley. Ashley lives in Massachusetts in the US, which is a zone six hardiness. I suspect this is a bit like the UK, maybe a bit uh, colder in winter. So we're talking sub-zero temperatures in the cold period of the year. And Ashley wants to know whether the beautiful ferns and English ivy that grow outside would be okay to bring home and try growing inside. Ashley says, it's free, abundant and very tempting. But is this a recipe for disaster? 
Ashley's worried about pests and whether she should quarantine these plants and also whether they'd survive indoors all year round. So let's take these questions in turn. First of all, pests. Yes, any new plant that you're bringing inside from any outside environment, be it the great outdoors or a nursery or somebody else's home, should be quarantined if you possibly can. Ideally, a separate room, certainly a good six foot away from any other plants, more if possible, just so you can check that there's no mealybugs creeping about or aphids on tender tips of growth or anything like that. Sometimes things aren't apparent at first. So if you can quarantine, do. So that's that part of it. But then we're on to the more serious issues of whether these plants would survive indoors. Well, English ivy, heterohelix, you will see it listed in houseplant books as something that you can grow indoors. Personally, I find it to be one of those plants that actually doesn't do particularly well in a centrally heated home. If you've got an old school home, which has only got certain heat rooms heated and you've got unheated rooms or rooms that are cold for most of the time then English ivy is certainly something to try it'll probably do well in that kind of environment but it doesn't like hot dry air that most of us have in our homes in winter it tends to get spider mite look miserable and it's hard to get the watering levels right on this plant so the heterohelix is something that is possible but but possibly not advisable actually depending on your environs and bear in mind there's lots of similar plants that you can grow that aren't English ivy but look similar uh, but will grow well indoors i'm thinking of things like swedish ivy plectranthus verticillatus which is a lovely fleshy leaved plant with ivy-ish leaves, which grows very well indoors and is super easy. Senecio bryonifolius, which is not that easy to get hold of, but is a wonderful house plant and very, very easy to grow if you can get your hands on it. And of course, the pothos plants, of which there are many things like Epipremnum aureum and so on. So ivy is a lovely thought but you'll know whether it loves your home fairly quickly so um, and the the ferns will generally ferns is divided into ferns that are hardy that will grow outside in sub-zero temperatures in winter with no problem and those that are from more tropical subtropical environments and those tend to be the ones that we grow indoors and i suspect that if you take ferns from outside that are growing successfully there, Ashley, that probably they're going to be pretty miserable in your house. The conditions are going to be so different, particularly in winter, and they may well struggle. Which brings us neatly to the third issue, which is, well, should you be taking plants from outside anyway? It all depends on the context that you're in. So, for example, if a friend has lots of English ivy in their garden, it's absolutely fine to dig some of that up and try growing that in your house, provided that they have given permission for you to do so or to take some cuttings and roots and cuttings of some ivy. And similarly, any ferns that are growing outside, if you think you might want to give them a try and if they're growing in somebody's garden and you've got permission, then certainly certainly give it a whirl and see how you get on. Where we get onto more shaky ground is anywhere outside a garden or any piece of land where you've gained permission from the land owner. If you are sourcing plants from places which are wild or semi-wild, then it's really something to stop and think about because not only is it not really very ethical to be digging up plants from the wild, uh, it's you also may run into problems with, with laws where you live. Obviously, it depends what part of the world you're in, but here in the UK, certainly there are laws against digging up plants in the wild and certain plants, and some of them are indeed ferns that are rare in the wild, are specially protected. 
So it's something to really think hard about before you go and do. There are other ways that you could collect ferns, for example, collecting spores. Um, again, I would speak to a fern expert in your area who might be able to tell you if there are any ferns that might grow well indoors. But otherwise, do investigate the, the wonderful world of ferns because there are lots of subtropical and tropical ferns that are very similar looking to the hardy ferns that we find in gardens in the US and the UK, which look very similar. So it may be that you can find what you're looking for without having to go down the road of digging things up. I guess it's very tempting to see free plant material and think, oh yes, I must have that. But it's always worth exercising caution. The wilder the environment, the more it needs protecting. So just bear that in mind and always, always, always ask permission from the landowner before you go and take anything. It's tempting to think that just taking one small cutting or digging up one little plant isn't going to make a difference to an environment but if everyone who visited did that then there would be nothing left and unfortunately plant poaching is a problem in many parts of the world and this is a subject I'd like to get into in a future episode looking at some of the plants that are really under threat in the wild because of the way that they are taken from their natural environment by poachers, including things like the lovely Venus flytrap, which we investigated in the Venus flytrap episode many moons ago now, and also things like the succulent dud layer in California, which is being taken by unscrupulous poachers from its native environment in California. I'll put a link in the show notes to a piece about that. Well, Ashley, I hope that's given you food for thought and do have a try of some of those ivy-alike plants uh, and, and also some ivy as well. It's easy enough to get hold of ivy from many different plant shops if you can't source some cuttings or plants from friends who are already growing it. And if you've got a question for On The Ledge, you know what to do. Email me on the ledge podcast at gmail.com. That's it for On The Ledge this week. I'll be back next Friday for more foliage fun. Bye! The music in this week's episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops. An instrument the boy called Happy Day Gakana by Samuel Corwin, and The Encouragement Stick by Dr. Turtle. Ad music was Whistling Rufus by the Heftone Banjo Orchestra. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. See janeperone.com for details. <laughs>